0: This morning we begin our first Sunday in the season of Advent. And if you're new to church, the word Advent means arrival. And so we look back on God's first arrival as He lovingly wraps Himself in the dirt of His own creation, as He comes in Jesus Christ. And uh, not only do we look back, And wonder and in amazement at how God wrote Himself into human history irreversibly. But we also cascade our gaze forward to the second Advent, the one that is to come, when Christ will return as He promised. And we studied that at length in our series on Thessalonians. And the Advent series is all about looking back and looking forward. And so as we go through the season of Advent, we're going to explore four themes around. The loving God of creation coming to save his beloved creation. And those four themes are our need, God's promise, God's plan, and God's announcement. And so this morning we're going to be focusing on the need. And our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, the first 13 verses. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And then all of those bridesmaids rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, rather go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you will neither know the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. And you might be thinking, good pick, preacher. How is this supposed to get us in a Christmasy mood? Um, this is a bad text. No, this is a wonderful text, actually, because I know it's tempting to get on the Home Sense liturgy, uh, where, you know, October 31st, all the Halloween stuff is there, and on November 1st, everybody just gets holly jolly whiplash, and we're right into Christmas, and there's trees and lights everywhere. And it's tempting for... Uh, the church to follow suit, but there's a good reason why for centuries during the Advent season the church did not just pop the clutch on Christmas cheer. And the reason for this is because um, this, this season of Advent reflecting on God's movement through history is about a movement from darkness to light, tremendous darkness to unfathomable light, the sorrows and the hardships of darkness into the deliverance that comes with the light. And so we actually are very thoughtful about this journey and looking very thoughtfully and honestly about the darkness and about uh, God's answer for the darkness and light. And so we move in this anticipation through the Advent season uh, considering Jesus Christ who pierces the darkness with his salvation and with his light. And so this passage that we look at this morning, this parable, Jesus tells a story to convey a very real truth. Jesus uses this theme of people who are in great darkness, they get tired in the darkness, they get weary in the darkness, but then he breaks forth in tremendous light. So this morning we're going to explore this theme, walk through the parable, and we're going to look at, firstly, the weariness of the darkness, secondly, the fuel that brings light to the darkness, and then lastly, the light that pierces the darkness. So first, the weariness. The weariness of the darkness is our condition. This is the human condition. If you ever had a friend who uh, said they would meet you and then they were delayed, you sat in a coffee shop or the restaurant or wherever you were, and perhaps their friend you hadn't seen in a while, and you're very excited. And the longer they were delayed and the, and the, and the more tardy they became, the, the more your excitement waned. And probably the more frustrated you got. Maybe you started out thinking, oh my goodness, I hope everything's okay. I hope their car didn't break down. But if they're an hour later, you would have been saying, their car better have broke down. (laughs) Because there's something about weariness that comes in waiting. And in this parable, we see this uh, explained. The waiting, the weariness that comes. But it comes in great darkness. In the ancient world, uh, darkness was understood and conveyed Uh, many things that it doesn't mean today because we don't really live in darkness today at all since the advent of electricity Uh, in most of the regions of the world, I should say, particularly where we live in the city. It's never dark. Even at night, it's not dark. You could walk around very easily at night in the middle of the city at one o'clock in the morning without any problem. But in the ancient world, darkness was like you can't see me. (laughs) It was just like you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And So there came with the darkness also tremendous danger. You didn't go out at night. You were were prey if you went out at night in more ways than one. And so this is what's going on. And this theme of the, the weariness that comes in darkness is something all throughout the Old Testament. There's a very famous passage of scripture where if you've been in church for any length of time, you would have heard it. It's Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And that was spoken to the children of Israel in a time of tremendous darkness. They were oppressed at at the point of that prophecy. It had been 70 years, an entire lifetime of oppression and darkness. And God knows that we are weary in the dark. And what he does is he doesn't give us a silver lining theology. Uh, He doesn't give us a silver lining idea where it's just like, it's okay, everything's going to be great right around the corner. Just hang on a little longer. It's much more pervasive and stronger than that. It's, I am here with you. And he wants to build resilience in his children. And so there is a hope that comes, and we're going to see it in these bridesmaids, in this bridal party. There is a a resilience that's available in deep darkness. Um, In verse 5, this bridegroom is delayed. And I want you to notice that it's not just the foolish in the bridal party that fall asleep. The entire bridal party falls asleep. The wise fall asleep. No Christian is like sober and vigilant all the time, walking out, you know, great love and worship for Jesus all the time, love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, the fruit of the spirit all the time. Nobody's letting their little light shine all the time. They all grow weary. They all grow uh, grow tired. They all sleep. And God knows our frailty in the dark. A little, little bit later in the teaching, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the fuel that's available in the dark. But it wears on us. The, 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 the darkness, the oppression, the heaviness of the first century is not unlike the 21st century. Sickness and disease, sorrow, death, oppression, uh, having your, your livelihood destroyed on the other side of catastrophic levels of greed or lack of integrity, or a myriad of things that can cause your life to go sideways, the unfaithfulness of relationships, of friends, spouses, co-workers, employers. There's a lot of of ways darkness can come into our lives and can absolutely rob us of our joy, and those things are true as much today as they were when this teaching was given by Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, maybe you're uh, agnostic, um, the common ground that we have as Christians and agnostics is we can look out on the world and say, everything's not okay. There's darkness here. We can agree with this. Um, we're both looking out and saying we can find beauty in the world, no doubt. But there's this undeniable darkness. It's We, we, we can... During the Christmas season, radio stations and television stations and news feeds will put encouraging bright spots of generosity and love, stories of selflessness and sacrifice and like these beautiful things. But sadly, it's all again against this undeniable backdrop of brokenness, this staggering catalog of wrongs in the world that are just constantly going on, things that that countries and individuals and communities we don't really know how to atone for. And so the Christmas season is difficult for a lot of people because they feel this sort of cultural jingle-jangle pressure to bracket out the darkness so they can have a couple of weeks of, of uh, you know, joy. And uh, it's very difficult for some people. As Christians, we can acknowledge the darkness. We can look honestly straight into the darkness and not uh, be swallowed up in the, the depression and the sadness of the darkness. But we all absolutely grapple with it. And... Uh, When we're honest about the darkness of the human condition, we can fall into two ditches during the time of the Reformation. uh, Well, it was shortly after that, but Martin Luther wrote a a book called uh, A Treatise on Love and Good Works in 1521. And he talked about this partnership between the fact that we're saved by faith alone, but the faith doesn't stay stay alone. And the the challenge of the Christians, Luther said, was sometimes they're like drunks on horseback. They just fall into one ditch and then they get up and overcorrect and fall into the other one. And on this subject of darkness and the condition of the world, we can fall into two ditches. The one ditch is we can get angry at the city, angry at the world, angry at the things that we see in our news feed, sort of brood around like spiritual scrooges and uh, kind of kill the vibe. We can kind of fall into that ditch of every time somebody tries to point out a bright spot, we're like, yeah, but also don't forget about this. We can fall into that and be very angry about it. Or we can overcorrect and end up in the other ditch and have sort of a buddy the elf theology where we're just where we just kind of come off to people like, hey, everything's going to be great, guys, and I'm blessed. I'm too blessed to be stressed. And how are you? And everything's always absolutely incredible all the time. And we're like, I don't even know how to relate to this person. Are a human being? So the acknowledgement of our weariness, the acknowledgement and the honesty about the darkness, it makes us candidates for God's grace. And as James wrote in his epistle, God resists the proud, but he gives great grace to the humble. So there is a weariness in the darkness of our condition, but let's move on to the fuel. The fuel that brings the light into the darkness, and this is God's present presence. presence. Uh, in verses six and seven, there's this cry at midnight. It's, it happens in the middle of the darkness. Nobody can anticipate it or expect it. It's sudden. And these wise women in the, in the bridal party, they have this fuel reserve to light their way in the darkness. So remember, both the wise and the foolish get weary. They both get tired. They both fall asleep. But then when there's this cry, there's this reserve that the wise ones have that the foolish ones don't have. And so what is this language of the wise and the foolish? Let's just be really clear on what this is. All throughout the wisdom literature of the scriptures, uh, to be wise, it, it, wisdom begins with the knowledge of God. With knowing God. With worshiping God. Wisdom wisdom flows from the worship and the love of God. This is the beginning of knowledge. This is the beginning of wisdom. All through the wisdom literature. To be wise is to know him. To be a fool is not to be unintelligent. To be a fool is to not know him. And then in not knowing him, not relating to the world in light of him. It's being incongruent with how God sees reality. And then it's relating to... Life, relationships, business, the poor, finances, sickness, death. It's relating to everything as if God doesn't exist. There's an incongruence between God's reality and how he sees the world and how we see it. That's what it means to be a fool. But it all stems from knowing him. And so we get a very clear picture that the wise know the bridegroom. The foolish do not know the bridegroom. And this becomes very clear, this image of being united with the creator united with our loving creator becomes very clear in verse 12 at the end of the passage where the bridegroom says through the closed door i don't know you he's not i don't i needed more from you i'm disappointed in you i wanted greater maturity in you it's i don't know you this is the language that jesus gives and in the Greek, uh, it's interesting because uh, this is all taking place in the dark. So it's a play on words where in the Greek, he says, uh, I don't oiga you. I don't see you. And, it's, and it's, in the same, it's being used in the same way that you and I would say when we're having a conversation with somebody, oh, I see what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I know what you're saying. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an intimacy with those who are wise. And then there's just a complete lack of relationship in those that are unwise, who don't know. And so there's this presence, this oil that's uh, there, this, which has been used throughout the scripture, this picture of the presence of God, um, the approval of God, the anointing of God, the anointing oil on prophets and kings, this, this idea that this one belongs to me. And so the wise have the oil, the foolish don't have the oil. And uh, God's graciously provided for those of us who know him this means of being refueled in the midst of dark and terrible times and in verse 9 the wise say to the foolish um, they are like give us what you got and they're like we can't give it to you you got to go buy some so there's this picture of cost and some of you might say, oh my goodness what are we talking about we thought that grace was without works and apart from cost exactly it is And yet it costs us our thrones. (laughs) So the grace of God is apart from all of our works. It's scandalous and undeserved. And when we turn to him and we trust in him, by grace and faith alone in Jesus Christ, he accepts us, he receives us, and we are saved apart from our works. It's unconditional. Christ's substitution requires no contribution. And when that sinks deeply into your heart, when you realize... That you're not saved based on the life you're living. It changes the way you live. You desire from the scandal of that glorious grace to live to the glory of the one who saved you in grace. And so there is a sense in which what it costs you is your throne. What was previously on the throne of your heart, your mind, your soul, you dethrone it. And the wise say to the fools... Go buy this for your. This is going to this oil, this presence, this knowing the the bridegroom. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you the throne. So what is on the throne of your life? What is on the throne of your heart and your mind? What makes you say life is worth living? And if this, this thing was taken from me, life wouldn't be worth living. What is that? What makes you say this is why I get up in the morning? This is what my life is all about. This is what drives me. What is that? That's on the throne. Your answer to those things may be, very well be good things. Using my gifts and vocation, helping the city flourish. Relationships, friendships, community. If you're married, spouse, maybe children. Those are all good things, but they, none of those belong on the throne. They should never be elevated to the ultimate thing. What's it going to cost me to know this God? What's it going to cost me to know this bridegroom? It's going to cost me the throne. It's going to mean that there's going to be a reallocation of the reason why I wake up in the morning. And what my life orbits around. It's knowing the bridegroom. And in knowing him and loving him and worshiping him, everything else finds its glorious place. And I can enjoy all good things without elevating them to ultimate things. and making them idolatrous and these sorts of things, but it's going to cost us. And I'll tell you, when Christ is not on the throne and you're in deep darkness, that is the fast track to absolute uh, unsettledness in the soul. Because the thing that you've put on the throne is too small to carry you through the darkness, too impotent to give you strength and resilience. There's no, it cannot refuel you in those seasons and those times of great darkness. It's only Christ alone, knowing the bridegroom. And so they wake up, and uh, they have this reserve, and the wise are refueled. There's a resilience that God wants in his children. There's a resilience he wants in you and I. You look around the world at the way in which Christianity has flowed and ebbed and flowed and moved across the globe by the power of the Spirit and the preaching of Christ throughout all cultures, you know, one of the things that you see is this incredible resilience in cultures where the church is absolutely crushed and oppressed that in the in the crushing in the oppression in the persecution there's just a tremendous there's a tremendous resilience that rises there's songs that rise One of the great gifts, uh, one of the many great gifts that the black church has given to just the people of God is is like the, the songs of joy, the writings, the poetry that's risen out of centuries of oppression. That's risen out of that. The sound of the people of God given oil and fuel in the midst of crushing darkness. Many countries around the world have those sorts of stories. Those sorts of Communities have that, that testimony of the fuel that, that refuels them in the darkness. And the same is true for you and I. That's not true for us in our day-to-day political experience, but it is true for us in our soul experience. Here, whereby we can be swept away to put other things on the throne in the cushy comforts of Southern Ontario. Very easy, The church, uh, you know, we are not quick to deny Jesus, perhaps, but dethrone him all the time. More than we would care to admit. And we go through a season of darkness and we find ourselves like the foolish virgins, uh, 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 the foolish uh, bridesmaids. Without oil, without the resilience, without the presence, needing very much to return back to the relationship and the strength that comes with our, with our God. You know, during this season, people will say, the holidays are hard. No doubt. The holidays are hard for a lot of people. Why? It's layered. There's a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons why, people will say, oh, remember, Christmas is hard for some people. Yeah. Because the holiday season, culturally speaking for us and in our city, it's all about sentiment and nostalgia and optimism and family and friends. And for a lot of people, those are not good things. The church has never survived on sentiment and nostalgia and optimism. The message of the gospel, those next four weeks over Advent, I'm not going to be preaching sermons of sentiment and nostalgia and optimism because we need something with much more gravitational pull to pull us out of these seasons of darkness. So, of course, these are tremendously difficult seasons. Sentiment, nostalgia, optimism, that's weak fuel for the soul. We need something stronger, and I'm not talking about spike and eggnog. That's not enough. Thankfully, what is being offered in the darkness is not this optimism, but it is this grounding sense of hope. The the, the, the salvation for the Christian is not a better set of circumstances. And yet, if Christ is not on the throne, our salvation is always basically wanting a better set of circumstances. What God wants for his children is the stabilizing hope irrespective of circumstances so that we're not held hostage by circumstances. This Christian hope, this ability to look headlong into the horrors of our world or our life or our bodies or our situations and be able to look them straight in the eye and say, Christ is Lord. That in 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, in Roman history, Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross, and three days later that tomb was empty. The Bible records it, the Babylonian Talmud records it, Roman antiquity records it, on the third day the tomb was empty, because we don't believe in a missing body theory. Jesus Christ was raised, hundreds upon hundreds saw him, it turned the world upside down. We believe this. Not only was he raised, but he will return again. And so that first advent cascades our vision forward. For the second, this gives us oil and resilience and strength for the moment. Last thing this morning is the light that pierces the darkness. This is God's gospel. And in verse 10, they're ushered into the party. This, this journey, this pilgrimage through utter darkness into incredible light. From a darkness so thick, you can't see your hand in front of your face, to the imagery of a wedding celebration. Lights, and eating, and drinking, and laughing, and feasting, and dancing with Jesus. This again is a theme, the wedding feast throughout Scripture. Eating, and drinking, and celebrating, and laughing, and dancing with Jesus. Creation begins this way, Genesis 1. God creates all things, and the, the poetry in Genesis 1 depicts a God dancing with joy over his creation. And the Bible ends with a wedding feast. God dancing with his creation. And here we get this image of this glorious journey of eating and drinking with Jesus. And we anticipate all of this during Advent. Not just the historical celebration that Christ the King has come. That he is coming again. And this is the hopeful truth that in the end, this bridegroom whose light and love pure our darkness came into humanity's darkness, uh, one day is going to eradicate the darkness. It's going to give us the, the bodies that we wish we had that keep evading us, that don't break down and get sick and die. This is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the hope. The world, the city that we wish we lived in, of justice without all of the dark sides, with joy without horizon, the civic life that we want that keeps evading us. This is coming in the return of Christ. How did God do all this? He didn't remain transcendent and untouched. He didn't remain outside the darkness. He didn't say, oh, you humans are gross. He came into our darkness. At the cross, the sky is turned to darkness. At the cross, Jesus is enveloped in darkness. At the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven is silent. He was abandoned so we could be adopted. He was forsaken so we could be forgiven and brought in. He experienced all of our judgment so we could experience all of God's grace. And so with all of this waiting and hastening, as we reflect on all of these things, church, this next week, may we be like little kids on Christmas Eve. If you remember when you were little on Christmas Eve... Uh, perhaps that was a pretty exciting time for you. Maybe I had, uh, had an idea that there was going to be a gift for you waiting the next day. And even though you didn't have it in your hands, the knowledge that it was coming was enough to change your whole vibe. Some of you have children today and on Christmas Eve, they're, they're living like Christmas Day is a reality. It isn't yet, but they're, they're living in the already but not yet of Christmas Eve as children they don't have the gift, and yet somehow it's like they have the joy that they have it. May we all be like the kids on Christmas Eve. May it affect the way that we live in our city this week. Knowing that the bridegroom who has pierced the darkness has brought us into his great light. He's united us to himself. This is God's gospel, that the king has come. That the son unites himself to us his spirit indwells us this is the very means by which the father continues to do the work of reconciliation to others through us and as we close our service today and we come to this lord's table this is a very small glimpse a very small picture a very small sign of what is to come the eating the drinking the celebrating with jesus it's a reminder This is why each week we come to the Lord's table. Do not forget. Yes, you're in darkness. Yes, you're going through this situation that is terrible. I'm not going to get up here and say, just hang on. It'll change on Monday. Maybe it will. and Praise God when those things do. And he he delivers us and heals us or or provides for us precisely in the way that we pray and, and ask. Praise him for those moments. Continue to pray and to ask. He invites us to do that. But may we not be naive and foolish. May we be wise that even if nothing changes and the situation crashes and burns and nothing changes and the doctor says nothing's changed. We can look that situation straight in the face and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm eating and drinking and celebrating because the end of the, er- the eradication of all sorrows and evil and suffering is one day coming. And this is the celebration of the gospel. The very, the very act that got us into this problem in the first place, in the garden. What do they do? They take, they eat. They try and fulfill themselves. Apart from God, they take, they eat. What do we do to celebrate redemption? We take, we eat. The very verbs, the very actions have been redeemed. As a reminder that we are his beloved children. We are his beloved creation. So may we go into the city this week and give a defense for this hope. The hope that we have in times of great darkness of the one who has flooded our souls with his light, Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray.